We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer... This might be your new favorite. They're blending up the new chocolate chip iced cap at Tim Hortons. Real chocolate chips blended into an iced cap for a sweet summer treat. It's Tim Hortons' frozen take on a cappuccino. And it just might be the best sound of summer. Hurry into Tim Hortons for the new chocolate chip iced cap. Limited time at participating restaurants. This is the Gator Nation football podcast. Powered by Campus Insiders. With your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp. Oh, my. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Well, well, well. That was different than we expected. I'm Alan Williams, right here next to James DiVirgilio here in Studio B. You're listening to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Welcome back. The Gators... Off a big win over South Carolina. We got a great show for you guys. But first, James, what happened? We won. You predicted a loss. I did predict a loss. I caught a lot of flack for that. I would like to say that I at least put the caveat in that if we had good quarterback play, we would not lose this game. So that's primarily one of the reasons. Uh, but I love the opening of this show in comparison to last week when last week was a negative surprise. And this was a very positive surprise uh, for a lot of reasons. So much happier sitting in this chair today than I was last week, for sure. Yeah, it's crazy. I predicted a score of 20 to 13, and it was almost that if South Carolina scores there at the end. But this game did not go as we expected. We dominated this game from front to back and, you know, missed out on a few scoring opportunities. But this wasn't even really close. Um, A different Gators team showed up than who showed up at Arkansas. And I there's a lot of reasons for that, but it's crazy what one week makes a difference one week makes in college football. I, it really, it seemed like night and day. Um, I don't know, let me go ahead and ask, what was the difference? Like, why was the offense more successful this week? Well, we talked about it last week that this team needed a spark, and, and, and we said, and, and I've continued to say on film, what we're running on offense is, is there. It's available. And, and so often we don't have the right trigger man delivering the ball. And you come out of the gate in this game and have an opening drive where you go and you score a touchdown. And there's a few simple passes that Apple be made that you think, oh, that's an easy pass. Any quarterback should make it. But we haven't been making it. And you think of the touchdown pass to Siante Lewis. We roll out to the right. We roll the formation. Uh, Siante comes from left to right. And he throws an on-time ball 
ahead of Siante Lewis at full speed to where Lewis is able to leave his defender and put the ball in the end zone. And we get a lot of emotional surge from that, which really led to the story of us crushing them in the first half, not on the scoreboard, but certainly with style of play. So the quarterback is going to make such a huge difference in football. You're seeing it with USC right now. They were 1-3, and three, switch quarterbacks. They're 6-0. and oh, They take care of Washington. The quarterback is the most important position in football. We've talked about it ad nauseum. Appleby had a fantastic game, and that's one of the reasons why this team was picked up on both ends of the ball. There was a lot of energy. You could feel it in the stadium as well. Uh, energy really picked up after that first drive. It was like, hey, we could be good. And we rode that really through most of that first half. Uh, which was encouraging to see because the last Appleby game we had was on the road against Vanderbilt, and and he looked much different than he looked in this game. Yeah, I love the way that he played this game. So the two things that he did well that we were hoping Del Rio was going to do was that he got the ball out on time, and he made the correct read almost every time. I mean, we were throwing a lot of short passes, but they were very effective. And I, I loved his decisiveness and his velocity on the ball, which... He does bring that more than Del Rio, but he was making the right read. No panic, uh, no like you know happy feet, no dodging ghosts, as McIlwain was saying in his press conference. So excellent job by him. Um, I mean, even two of his incompletions were just flat drops. So he was, and he threw one away. So he was almost on target with every single ball. So that was an impressive showing by him. Yeah, fundamentally, he was extremely sound. Great footwork, like you said. Great delivery, great velocity, the things we know. Most importantly, he didn't get spooked with his his drop back at all. We saw in that Tennessee game on the road in the second half when things started to go against him, when David Sharp started getting beat a few times by Barnett, he just his, he lost all of his footwork in the pocket. Now, a lot of that was because there was no pocket. But in this game, and credit goes to the O-line, which we're going to talk about, he had a very clean pocket. He, he was able to drop back on a three, five, or seven-step drop and then deliver the ball on time without somebody in his face, without someone altering his window. He also ran the read option really well, keeping it twice for really big plays that spurred us down the field. So from his from his standpoint, if you're grading the quarterback in this game, a near flawless performance. We'll talk about the one or two real mistakes he made in this game, but really, really good performance. I actually wish we would have used him more in the second half, which we'll also get to, but Great job for him. I think he's giving us a lot of momentum heading into this week against LSU um, because how we move the ball against South Carolina is how you can move the ball against any particular team. It wasn't really gimmicky. We are relying on a lot of like secret fake passes. We were basically lining up a lot of five wide, a lot of four wide receiver sets, and actually just beating them with scheme and delivery. So nice to see that. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about the O-line because... I think on film they played their best game of the season. And you had some major changes occur. Yeah, they were excellent. Uh, even in the running game, which we should say, I think allowed Appleby to be successful because they didn't know what we were running. So this is maybe the first time since Kentucky that we've been so disguised in what we're doing. It was excellent. They played so well. There were actual holes for running backs to run through, not just there's a tiny hole and Scarlet is strong and fast so we grinds out three yards. But every time we ran the ball, just about, there was, you know, a moment where the running back could hit the hole, gain five or six yards before contact. And we haven't seen that at all. Now, of course, not every run was, you know, a touchdown or there was a few, you know, bad plays here and there. But overall, they played excellent and they kept the pocket clean. There was great blitz pickup overall. The running backs did a good job with that too. I'll give them credit for... 
um, you know, excellent pass protection. When the, they're not always great in that, but they did really well this game. I mean, it's crazy, especially when you consider the injuries that happened. David Sharp going out very early. Tyler Jordan, our backup center, you know, normally a starting guard going out. Do you think those changes actually helped us? Well, we had that podcast five episodes ago. Where we said, hey, we think the offensive line needs to get shuffled up. And one of the things that I had mentioned was I would have liked to have seen Dillard, the center, out as well as Sharp being out. So in the absolute worst way, I got that little wish. Uh, obviously, I wouldn't want that to happen in that regard. You certainly don't want anyone to get injured. And South Carolina may not be the perfect gauge, very small sample size. But I do actually think, especially watching on tape, that TJ McCoy coming in the game at center uh, for Jordan, and then eventually Ivy shifting to tackle, which Ivy was also named the SEC Offensive Lineman of the Week this week. And like you pointed out before the show, he was named that at guard too earlier this season. Uh, I think it did sure up the line. Another fun fact is that Appleby actually said after the game that he's more comfortable with the lineup that he had post the injuries because those are the guys he runs with in practice every single week. Um, I really do like Ivy at tackle, though. That's what he was in his whole high school career. He's a five-star offensive lineman. I thought he's I thought he's quicker than he Sharp. He played well out there. He played really well out there. Um, I thought McCoy at center played great. It showed up on film a lot with his, his blocks. He was pulling all the way across the formation several times, getting there, getting a hat on a hat. So exemplary drop across the board. And like you said, the running backs, because they were less concerned about getting beat on the edge, were really able to pick up some of those free blitzers that came up the middle and a lot of our big plays came off of that. A lot of those drag routes we've been unable to hit came off of our running backs and pass pro picking those guys up. So it was fun on film to watch our offensive line put out a piece like that um, because we really haven't seen it at that level. South Carolina changed up their looks. They had multiple fronts, which typically confuses us. They zoned blitz. They stunted. There was only really one time that that was successful for them in that game. So hats off to the O-line being dealt what you would consider to be a bad hand. But we should probably spend a few seconds talking about TJ McCoy and then eventually also Kavaris, who came in at uh, guard. Who are these guys, Alan? Where are they from? Are they scrubs? Are they good? Are they are they recruited guys? I mean, who just are? Who are these guys? So TJ McCoy is a kind of an odd guy because he was an NC State guy and, and transferred kind of the last second a couple years ago. Hasn't really seen the field, but he's a guy that coaches like a lot. I'm, I knew they liked our depth along the interior of the line. So it's interesting that it took maybe him this long for him to get on the field. But uh, he played exceptionally well. I think he's a guy that, you know, he's smaller. He's he's built like a fire hydrant. He's not a big guy. But I think that's okay at center. You you don't mind a guy who's short in stature and really strong. Uh, Kavaris Harkless is maybe just a guy. He's a guy that has a lot of versatility. A lot of times you would see him in the depth chart as a backup at tackle. So they put him in there at guard. The coaches trust him, obviously. He's been hurt most of his career, so maybe hasn't had the kind of reps that would have allowed him to get into the rotation more. But, you know, he's the one who probably struggled the most in there. Um, but I have no idea what he's even practicing at left guard before right now. So um, good job by him stepping into the fire there and, and doing at least an admirable job. Um, he didn't look lost out there on most plays. So, um yeah, I'm really impressed with the offensive line, their ability, because I'm sure they have never practiced that particular lineup of Ivy, Harkless, McCoy, Johnson, Taylor. I don't know if they that those five guys in that order across the field have ever even taken a practice snap together. So excellent job, you know, with the bullets flying 
doing a really good job of, of protecting our quarterback and opening up holes for our running game. They they were the story of the game, in my opinion. They really were. They really were. And, that, and that's what we keep talking about, right? Quarterback play and offensive line play. Well, those two improved, and, and look at the result you had, especially in the first half. Uh, TJ McCoy, son of a pro, was a three-star recruit. He's a redshirt freshman. And then Kavaris Harkless is a, is a sophomore. He was a four-star slash three-star, depending on what service you looked at. So both of these guys are recruited guys. Uh, it wasn't like these are walk-ons or these are just bodies. It illustrates the depth that was there. It also, and we're going to really find this out this weekend, maybe illustrates that we weren't playing an optimal offensive lineman lineup. I'm not going to say that right now because South Carolina's defensive front is is undermanned. It's not super talented. We've struggled, certainly, with not super talented defensive lines all year long. Too early to say, but the film was encouraging looking at how those guys played. I'm especially interested to see how Ivy is going to play this weekend because he's going to go up against Arden Key, who is Big one test. of the absolute best pass rushers in college football. We're really going to see what his footwork's made of. I, in a way, though, if I'm being candid, feel better with Ivy's foot speed on the edge than I would with Sharp there. And I'm hoping the running backs in pass pro feel better about it too. We're going to see. That's going to be a really fun matchup to watch this weekend. Yeah, you know, you would think that that would just be devastating to lose Dillard and and Sharp, you know, just on paper. But the way those guys played, I don't know. Could be better. And if we can get Tyler Jordan back, we'll see. If he's an upgrade at, at left guard, um, could really come together for us in a way that sometimes, you know, that's just the weird nature of sports you don't realize you have something until it's forced upon you let's talk about one of our more high profile guys maybe his best game of the season in some sense in terms of the way he looked at least for the last five or six games that's Antonio Callaway excellent on special teams his punt returns I mean South Carolina does not have great special teams but he just looked like he hadn't looked all year and then his route seemed crisper. He did have one big drop, but overall competed, played aggressive, ran really crisp routes. I know you're impressed with him. Yeah, this was the Callaway that we had expected all year long. And he, he was fast coming out of his breaks. He was fast coming out of his first step on the punt returns. A fun thing you and I heard information on, which we are not saying this is true. It's just become a recurring joke. We'll let you in on is that, and really as lighthearted as possible, is that somehow Callaway has become maybe in love with Xanax. And so I know during the game, you and I were kidding and, and laughing about it. it must be a Xanax free day because he really did have a different level of, of pop in his step. And he still caught a punt within the five yard line, which he shouldn't do. And he did drop a pass that should have been a touchdown, but he looked like the player that is a difference maker. And that was important. I think it's one of the reasons why Appleby went 17 for 21 in that game. He should have went 19 for 21. He had two drops because Callaway set the tone right out of the gate that, hey, we're here to play today. And that's what he needs to do. He is our most dangerous player. So that's an encouraging sign from him to have such a great game out of him. Yeah, he's been relatively terrible at times at punt return this season where I just hope that nothing bad happens. And the coaches have kept running him out there. And I was hopeful, like, you know, put anybody else back there. Not not just his decision-making, which was bad at times, but just the overall blahness of our punt return. I think he had more punt returns yards yesterday than he had all season. And... I don't know, just we threw a ton of short wide receiver screens and short passes, but they gained a lot of yards. That's why we kept doing it. And so it was uber successful, and that was in part because Callaway played so well. Another guy who played well, that was totally unexpected. Maybe one of the bigger busts of recruiting. Incredibly highly recruited guy, 
lot of size, a lot of seeming ability. Ahmad Fullwood makes an incredible touchdown catch and then has a big play on third down uh, later in the game on a kind of jump ball. So <laughs> I don't know. When you get that kind of play from Fullwood, that's a good day. It was a it was a great day on Senior Day in the swamp. He shows up and has a nice game, and and I feel good for Fullwood. He, it's got to be frustrating when you at his size and his talent, and most of the time he's a run blocker. You and I comment eighty percent of the packages he's out there. It's a run. It's a running play when five's out there, and in this game he made two great catches. He he beat a um, essentially what was really a look of a cover two but wound up being a man on that corner route, which was perfectly executed. We ran a little out route by Callaway to hold the corner. A great throw by Corner route to beat the safety. It's a matchup you won all day long, but generally Fullwood hasn't been the guy that you trust in that matchup. Perfect throw, on time, great play. And the jump ball, same thing. We get man, he's matched up on a safety again. One, you're off the line of scrimmage. The proper read is to throw that go route. Appleby gets pressure in his face, puts it up, trusts the receiver in a 50-50 ball, and he goes and he wins it. And that's the kind of stuff you expected from him. So I feel really good that we got that out of him out of this game on an important game. We needed this game to stay in the East Hunt, and he did that, and he delivered. So really good when a senior does that. And the guy that's put his head down, he's done what the coaches have asked him. He's blocked. It's been a not-sexy year for him. So I really feel great about that. You want to reward those guys to stick with the program like that. Indeed. And I know we also were in some different looks on offense, some different formations. What did you notice out there that was – uh, different than what we've been running out there the last couple weeks. Well, contrary to what we did against Vanderbilt, I thought this game plan was was way more conducive to what Appleby likes to do. So we had a lot of five wide sets, one of those being a running back, a la Patriot style. We had a lot of four wide receiver sets. We had a lot of uh, of jet sweep motion too. So a lot of pre-snap motion in this game with either Powell or Callaway coming across the formation, which I think helped our running game. But primarily, I think Appleby really excelled in its pre-snap reads when we had uh, South Carolina in a dime package, four and five wide. I think that really, really helped us. And one of the main reasons why is it simplifies the game to a certain extent. If you have what you would consider to be 12 personnel or 11 personnel, three wide receivers or two wide receivers out there, it's harder to read what the linebackers are doing. They can get more creative in their dropping of their coverages. When you have five receivers, five wide out there, it's very, very basic to read what's happening. And I thought he really excelled with that. I look to see more of that against an LSU 3-4 front that can be really confusing this upcoming weekend. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully that will be a sign of, of some potential offensive success. We hadn't seen a whole lot of that with Luke Del Rio. We would march out five wide sets, but the play calls and the route trees were much different under those circumstances. So that was a change for this game specifically. Yeah, I thought the coaches did a really nice job of um, putting our players into in a chance to succeed, put them in a good position to succeed. And so that's all on the offense, wide receiver, running back, offensive line. So, uh, you know, credit to them in the first half for being aggressive, calling some nice runs. I mean, those read options, I guess, were just, I mean, I guess we've been running those in the past and just not had a chance to keep it. But it was surprising to see Apple keep it and take off down the middle of the field. Huge spark for the offense early on in the game. Um, maybe one negative, the turnovers. And I know maybe the most egregious one, the Mark Thompson fumble, his only carry of the game. I think that's probably why. Mark Thompson, obviously on this podcast, we've continued to talk about him for the wrong reasons. He was a guy that you thought this year might might have been our best running back, potentially, from what you had heard coming out of camp. And has really struggled. Hits the wrong hole. Fumbles at a crucial time. And that was a that time, if you recall, that was early enough in the first quarter. We're about to go up fourteen nothing. Momentum is entirely on our side. He's gaining an easy first down, 
and fighting for extra yards. And it, it gets punched out. I mean, it's not like he was carrying it like a loaf of bread. But at the same point in time, he just hasn't been able to get it done for whatever reason. And when you think of, okay, but well, what if Thompson wasn't in there and that was Scarlett instead? There's almost no way Scarlett fumbles. He, ha- he hasn't given his level of productivity how he's handled the ball. So frustrating turnover there, momentum-changing turnover. And I'm sure if you were like us in the stands or you're watching on television, you were thinking, ugh, we're crushing them right now. Yet they have the ball and it's 7-0 on a really just unfortunate mistake when he either A, could have fallen down, B, protected him more. But just a really unnecessary fumble there. Yeah, the, the turnovers are so frustrating because we're so close to blowing them out. And every time it seemed like we had a moment, this has been the maybe the story of the season, we have a chance for momentum, we do something to shoot ourselves in the foot. This happened a few times in the first half, most notably the fumbled snap between McCoy and Appleby. And it was a really, it was a killer at the time, but reflecting on it, maybe that was inevitable. This is the third string center with the backup quarterback. I don't know that they've ever practiced a snap together, that combination. So that was potentially inevitable that they were going to have some kind of miscue there. So I can't really blame them for that. And then what did you think about Appleby's interception there at the end of the half? Well, that was his only bad throw of the whole game. So he, he goes through his read progression, checks checks high-low, not there, checks his outlet on the drag route, not there, and then proceeds to try to become a playmaker. And the most important thing when you're playing quarterback at this level is actually not to become a playmaker. If your check down's not there, throw the ball away. Go to the next play. Now, in this scenario, if there's any level of forgiveness to be given, which there is some, there are 40 seconds left. You're in the two-minute drill. You're trying to drive the ball down the field. Uh, South Carolina's linebacker made a great play to get back into that window, but it illustrates why you don't do that. So we had run a drag route, like an in route, about 10 yards in from left to right, left slot receiver running right. Appleby had checked. That window should be thrown in between the two linebackers in the middle of the field. But what happened was Appleby had tried to throw it to a far right window, which was there. But then, of course, that linebacker pulls off his position, slides back into that gap because he doesn't have a receiver to guard there anymore. And so it illustrates why, if you've ever heard you don't throw late over the middle or anything like that, uh, this is why. So great play by South Carolina. That ball would have been completed had he not tipped it. But regardless in that scenario, it's a good habit. Don't throw late over the middle. If you go through your progressions and it's not there, don't become a playmaker unless you have to be. Yeah. End of the game, fourth down, those sort of things. And in this situation, I think he probably felt like maybe he needed to make a play there with the clock yeah, running down. I think if he doesn't throw that, he takes a stack, and maybe it's roughly the same result we're going to punt or you know, kind of time out the clock. So I, I wouldn't kill him for that. Right, and if you're an NFL pro, what do you do there? You probably duck the ball at the feet of your crossing route guy. Uh, you know, you just love to play the next down. You can't expect college kids to always do that. So that's not a super egregious mistake. He's got a really strong arm. He kind of Dan Marino that one in there. That's really the only mistake he made in the whole game. But the, to your point on the turnovers, the one thing I want to mention, it's never good in a game when you feel like you should be up by multiple touchdowns and you're not. That's that's what good teams do. Great teams put you away. They don't let you hang around like that. And if you felt the frustration that, that we did sitting in the stands, it was that, hey, this game should have been 21 nothing, and South Carolina would have been basically out of the game which is definitely true. And so you had that really unfortunate Thompson fumble. You had the exchange fumble, which was which was frustrating. Is it Applebee's fault? I don't know McCoy's fault. I don't know. You couldn't tell from the replay. Too hard to know. The quarterback probably takes the blame there. And then this turnover wasn't as much of a huge momentum shift as you just felt like you were behind the eight ball because you wanted a touchdown back because of and the, you didn't get the it. The Callaway punt return with the phantom holding call, which wasn't there. 
felt like another just brick in the wall of our killing our momentum. Correct. And so you get all these huge points. And, and on the Callaway thing, yeah, we watched that tape a lot too. And it, that there is no way that's a hold. He gets tackled by essentially South Carolina's tight end on that plate. Ridiculous. But you felt that frustration. We had played a near-perfect first half. We had one punt. We had driven the ball at will when we wanted. We should have put them out 21-28, nothing, however you want to look at it. And it's not, and it's frustrating. And that's been the story of our year this year. You know, we're 121st in red zone scoring. We score 70% of the time, which means three out of 10 times we don't get any points at all in the red zone, which is almost worst in the NCAA. And it's a lot of weird reasons. And you keep thinking, maybe this will fix itself next week. But it hasn't yet. So great, great first half. We're going to talk about the second half and how we felt about that on the offensive side of the ball in a second. But let's look on the other side. What impressed you the most about our defense with some with several new faces out on the field in this game? Yeah, I've got to say David Reese and Kylan uh, Johnson are two freshman linebackers. They were stellar, especially considering this is their first significant action. And those guys have been on the field some this year. But watching them on film, they were almost always in the right spot. And credit to the safeties and some of the other guys for helping them line up correctly sometimes. Marcel Harris saw him nudging them around. Um, but yeah, they were fast, aggressive. Reese looks excellent in filling the gap. Um, loved his play. Kylan Johnson. There's there's a moment where they're both around the ball, like several times, making a tackle, you know, out in space. So they were so so good, far exceeded expectations. Yeah, they were so good that that I really, after watching film, have a hard time thinking the game would have been any different if Anzalone and Davis were in there for that particular game, which is incredible to say that. Because these are freshmen out there. And, and hats off to Randy Shannon and the crew for their preparation because those guys played unbelievably well. Um, encouraging sign. And this weekend they're going to have a huge test. And we're going to see what they're made of. But really phenomenal job by them. Uh, obviously we had a guy go down in Marcus May, who's our best run stopper, if you if you will, in this game. Our best additional run stopper. And now we've lost the three of our, of our top three tacklers are all gone heading into LSU. Crazy. Marcel comes in. Marcel Harris. Does a nice job. He's played a lot, obviously. Yeah. He certainly rotates in and out of that position, but came in, played full time, did a really nice job. I thought he had a good nose for the ball. Doesn't hit like Marcus May, but was in the right position on nearly every single play. Um, so that was encouraging. Excellent interception. Read the ball, broke on it. I think it's Jake Bentley's first interception. Made a stellar play out there, out in space, where that's a tough play for a safety, and he comes down with the ball. Really impressed with him. Um, and your boy, Taven Bryan, who. Sometimes, you know, very aggressive getting up the field. It's a talent for him. He's super quick off the ball. You know, sack, strip, recovers the fumble. That was a great play. I mean, we've talked about Taven Bryan a lot for the wrong reasons. And it is because teams use his ability to jump the gap against him, which is a good ability to have. I think hopefully he'll learn from that. But what a what a phenomenal play to to strip Jake Bentley of that ball and then also recover it. Hats off to him for that. It was a, it was a fantastic moment in the game and, and a moment where we needed it. This game was still hanging for a long, long time. So that was a crucial play. Yeah, and Joey Ivey had a great game, a couple of sacks, was always in the backfield. Great stopping the run. We're a different team when he's in there at nose tackle. Um, love that he's healthier and playing. Um, schematically did some interesting things too. Um, I know you liked a, a certain look where we dropped Brian Cox back into coverage. And that was really effective as well, things like that. South Carolina had run several slants in this game on Tabor, and, and they were getting them. They were hitting them. Um, 
So I think it was in the third quarter, we we lined up Brian Cox at his typical end position, and we dropped him back into that slant window, and he knocked the ball down, uh, completely fooling Jake Bentley. And it's those little things in a game that matter a lot, because you've now planted a seed in the quarterback's head that, hey, they, that guy might drop back. And it gives him something extra to check for. And we talked a lot about this after the Tennessee game, where we just did none of that. And we have been sprinkling that in. And that shows good timing, too. The fact that we sprinkled that in was basically saying that we had an idea they were going to try it. And that's a that's a, a fantastic play in that moment to, to sprinkle that in against a South Carolina team that didn't really want to throw the ball that often. Uh, so important to stop them when they were throwing the ball. So schematically, good job by the coaches. Players excelled. I mean, USC only got past midfield a couple times until their late scoring drives. I mean, the first half, they could barely move the ball. Um yeah, super impressive. Not a ton to say because they're just continued excellence. The only real note was new guys doing it, which is really encouraging. All right, a name that we haven't said on this episode, strangely yet, Will Muschamp. I, you know, not a big deal. There wasn't a lot going on with that. I thought that maybe would play into it more, but he didn't come up in the broadcast. We haven't talked about him yet. But Will Muschamp coming back to the swamp. I don't know thoughts. He, he acted just like Will Muschamp. He comes out and goes, run, 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 punt <laughs> to open the game. And then he, he really, he really his, his best player is Jake Bentley. I think that was evident to anyone that was watching the game. I don't care that he's a freshman. I don't care that he turns 19 in 10 days. Give that guy a chance to win that game. You found yourself down 20 to nothing, and it took until seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter, really, before they were like, hey, let's really start throwing the ball a lot more. Now, we had done a nice job sacking him. Certainly, they tried to throw the ball, but it felt like a very Kurt Roper, Will Muschamp-esque offense where they were going to try to win the game like 10-7. to And again, that's why I'm so happy Will Muschamp's not here. I don't want to win games 10-7. to I have no desire to play every single game playing not to lose, which was their total game plan. And once again, they spend a first half scoring no points and a game in the swamp where they have a really poor offensive day. Yeah, it was interesting to see them go so conservative. And if we had not fumbled in the first half, we would have eradicated them. And so, but you know, maybe that's what he's hoping for. I thought there may have been a little, you know, kind of animosity from the fan base. A little more booing of Muschamp if he had gotten on the field or something. But it really wasn't one of that. And then after the game, seeing the players in Muschamp kind of reconnect, a lot of his guys on this team, obviously, so I'm glad that it wasn't an acrimonious situation more than it could have been. Um, interesting quote by Muschamp, though, when talking about penalties. So Muschamp says and said when he was here and maintains this now that penalties are not a coach at Florida problem. They're a Florida Gator problem. And that doesn't mean that the players at Florida get more penalties. He's actually insinuating that the referees call more penalties on Florida much as though people that drive red cars get more tickets, kind of old wives' tale. And he actually believes that. And an interesting thing was, Will Muschamp's team had one penalty Indeed. on Saturday, and we had 10, one of which was a touchdown that shouldn't have gotten called the back. That so, proves him right, James. So right, this one-game sample size must be it. But interesting, <laughs> interesting comment. He really does believe that. A lot of other people, I think, that are Gator fans also believe that. I don't know what to make of that. Urban's a guy that gets a lot of penalties everywhere that he is. Certainly this year, Muschamp's team is not getting a lot of penalties, so maybe. I mean, it's interesting. But... Florida's been penalized no matter who's the coach, so I, I don't know. That feels like a little bit of conspiracy theory, but there might be something psychological to that dating back to the 90s. Who knows? But Muschamp believes it, interestingly enough. All right, we talk about Muschamp being conservative. Let me ask you this question. Were our coaches 
especially offensive coaches, too conservative in the second half. Yes. And what I want to pull from this and what I want everyone out there to think about is this question. As a coach, you have two real choices. One, you decide in the second half of that game that you are going to play the game not to lose. Or what they would say, we're going to play to win this game. Two, you have a chance to play that second half to where you're trying to make your team better. Let's call that a long-term philosophy. You're using each rep to improve yourself, right? And that philosophy is going to entail that you essentially play with the same kind of style. This, in my opinion, would become a cultural argument. You want your team to win a game, finish opponents, play aggressive until the end, versus you're going to try to win every single game. And that means that, hey, you're up 20 to nothing. Your defense is really stopping them. You don't think they can score on you. Let's get conservative. Just don't screw it up. Don't mess up. Don't turn it over, which I personally hate that mentality. I think a lot of Gator fans hate that mentality because we grew up on Steve Spurrier, who didn't do that. I hate that mentality because I think it's a losing mentality. I think it's an inefficient way to reach what your goal is, which is every coach's goal should be, how good can I make my team? How good can we become? And that's your goal. And you do not reach that goal by pulling the reins back on your team in situations like we had on Saturday. So we came out in the second half and we go run, 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 punt. We get a crucial turnover on their 40-yard line and go run, run, incomplete pass. And it just didn't feel like we had any interest in really blowing the doors off them in the second half. When in the first half, we did whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. And the second half was like, let's run a clock and end this game. I didn't like that. I don't like that. It continues to, to raise tactical questions for me on McElwain and what he really believes or what he's doing or whether he's holding on to tell they try to win the game. And and maybe he felt like, hey, we have to have this game to win the East. Let's just throttle it back and win it. But I just don't think our team is in a spot where that's what we should be doing. We need to be getting better. It didn't feel like in the second half that was our goal. It felt like we were hanging on to win. And I just I don't like that. I didn't wasn't as frustrated with how conservative they were. I think some of it was circumstantial with certain penalties on certain drives, certain plays that didn't work. But overall, I would have loved them to be more aggressive because we're going to play teams coming up here in the next couple of weeks where you're not going to be able to sit on the ball. And I don't want to play the let's, let's bleed the clock, let's shorten the game and try to steal one, right? That, that's not Florida. We We have enough talent to compete with anybody. Now, if you're in a weird situation, maybe you do that against Alabama. I have no idea because that's a different kind of scale. But agreed, I would like the coaches to err on the side of being more aggressive in the sense, not stupid, not risky, but aggressive in trying to win the game and not just hoping they won't lose it. And as evidenced by the play call, in case you're wondering, hey, it felt like we should have scored more touchdowns in that second half had we not dropped some passes. Yeah, that's true. You'd be right. But we called 18 run plays and nine pass plays in that second half. Typically, we're 50-50. So what does that mean? Maybe nothing. Maybe it just meant that, hey, we had a drive where we ran the clock out in the, in the fourth quarter. But to me, you can feel when a team decides they're just trying to run the clock out. And to me, it felt like that was our goal midway to the third quarter. And I hated that, given that you had Appleby, who was, for all practical purposes, finishing the game at 19 for 21 81% completion rate, an absurdly high quarterback rating. You were killing them in the pass. Why not come out and try to try to beat them 41 to 7, 41 to nothing? Why not put it on them? Let them know we're here for years to stay. We're going to pound you. We're going to crush you. We're not going to back down because we're afraid of losing. So, didn't love that. But we'll see how that, you know, does that affect us this weekend? 
I don't know, but it's a longer term cultural question. You want your team, I think, to really crush people when they can. I haven't seen that thus far in the McElwain era. We've won a lot of games like this where we say, man, we should have won by more. We've won a lot of games like that, and I'm kind of getting sick of that. So just a sidebar, I would like to see him become more aggressive to finish games off. Yeah, maybe one note of criticism and otherwise really successful weekend. Okay, it's time to announce the winner of last week's contest, and it's Chris Hodges. So thanks to everybody for posting their predictions on the link. Congratulations, Chris. All right, for this week, to win some free swag from fanessentials.net, all you need to do is retweet the show link on Twitter. Fanessentials.net makes a great gift, as it'll send you a box of cool gear from your favorite professional sports team. If you use the promo code GATERS, you'll get 30% off. Joining the program now is Gainesville's own Ian Scott, former defensive tackle for the Gators, SEC champion in the year 2000, fourth-round pick with the Bears. Ian, great to have you on today's show. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's always great to talk to uh, Gator fans all over the place. So, Ian, you played on the defensive line, your defensive tackle. Who's impressed you the most on this year's Gators defensive line? Um, what I, what I've been, I guess, uh, impressed the most with is I knew some of the guys who were really good, uh, but, uh, uh, Zaniga, if I'm saying his last name correctly, um, has played, uh, pretty well when he's gotten a chance to go in there and made some, uh, big plays and looks like, uh, he had an opportunity to, uh, have a pretty, uh, bright future, uh, for us down there. What are your thoughts on Joey Ivy? He's a guy that... I think plays reminds me a little bit. Of you plays with a lot of effort and uh, consistency. Um, yeah, he he plays he plays uh, extremely hard uh, when he's in there, and uh, he he does uh, help uh, the defense out and uh, make us some good plays. And it's always nice to see uh, that guys play with effort because you don't get to see a lot of that uh, a whole lot uh, these days. You got a lot of guys sometimes with. A lot of talent, but they don't uh, play hard uh, when they're in there. And so, uh, I enjoy watching uh, him uh, play as well as uh, a lot of the guys uh, that we have out there because they uh, they take it personal and uh, really uh, go out there and play as hard as they can. What is it like when you're preparing for a run-heavy team like LSU that runs so many sets that feature two tight ends, one receiver? A lot of times they're blocking eight or sometimes even uh, nine guys. Is the preparation different than facing a team that that has a little more balance or a little bit more pass to them? Not necessarily because when you're playing defense, you always have to take away the run first because if you don't do that, then teams are able to attack you in multiple ways and it really makes the – job for the linebackers and safeties very difficult if a team can run and throw the ball so you're always focused on stopping the run first a team that does it a lot of different ways what you have to focus on and the difference is making sure that consistently you know with every play every call on defense where you have to line up where you're supposed to end up who is going to be on one side or the other, uh, who's responsible for the gaps on either side of you. So you know how it all moves together. And the more that you're able to 
be consistent with that, especially as a front seven or front eight, the more successful you will be. And it helps that if when everybody knows who's responsible for what, that way when things uh, go, you know, if, if things are to break down, you know how to fix them up and, and get them right quickly. What's it like being a defensive tackle heading into a game where you're going to play a team like LSU with a running back like Leonard Fournette? What's your mentality heading into that game? Well, the, the mentality, especially, you know, for a game like this is we got to have this win and get an opportunity to play for an SEC championship. And we're going to do whatever it takes to, to make sure that um, we take away what they're good at and what they're best at. And we're going to um, – that's kind of the focus that you, that you go into these types of games with is you want to make sure that you do whatever you can to make it – difficult for the offense to be able to execute their best stuff. And if you feel you feel like if you can take away their best stuff, then that gives you the better opportunity to win and you can uh, react to the things that they might not do so well. So that's always uh, the focus and um, having a, a running back that's as good as what they're going to face this weekend, it just makes it even more special because you get an opportunity to play against the best and uh, that's what you want and that's why you go to Florida you get to play against the best and challenge yourself to beat the best and uh, it makes it uh, an exciting week so when you're lined up as a defensive tackle and you're facing something you've seen on film and you're ready to do specifically your job Mm -hmm. is the most important thing on most plays gap control as a defensive tackle? And when do you know when it's best to really take a risk and maybe blow into the backfield versus just holding your ground? <laughs> um, so that all depends on how how the defense works together. So um, when, you have, when you have eight guys up there in the, in the box that are responsible for the run, if you have somebody, it might sound kind of counter to, counterintuitive, but if you have somebody get out of position, it's a bigger gap. And the reason that is is because you don't have the extra protection in the back. You have one less safety behind you in order to make up for mistakes. So when you're as a defensive lineman, and it depends on what your skill set is. And so some guys – some guys are not the the best at staying in their gap, but they're very good at penetrating and causing disruption. And what you have to understand as a defense alignment, there's four of you there, and the four of you are responsible for, you know, creating a new line of scrimmage. Because the linebackers don't do that unless they're blitzing. So you have to create a new line of scrimmage. So the most important thing is getting your hands on the offensive alignment first. You have to beat that person to where they're trying to get to, and you have to get there um, in a hurry. You got to get there as quickly as you can uh, because that will allow you to react to what happens next. Uh, always, um, I was always taught by whatever defensive coach that you got to beat the guy who's lined up in front of you. So. Uh, sometimes you're you may be stunting and you have to get to a gap, so you got to get there fast. And other times it's just lining straight up and hitting the guy and 
making sure that you knock him back before he gets a chance to to knock you off course. And then you can make up for, you know, if you're not in your gap at first, you can make up for that because you've beat that offensive lineman and you've taken away his power. So that's kind of what you're focused on uh, at the beginning. But you do have to have an understanding of where the other guys are fitting. Not so much as a defensive tackle because you have more opportunities for people to cover you, um, but a, uh, a defensive end, especially when you get safeties involved, you got to clear it up. You got to know that the safety is responsible for this gap, and so I have to be where I'm supposed to be. So it makes it clear for the safety, so he can fit where he's supposed to, or the linebacker can fit where they're supposed to. Yeah, but it all comes down to beating that guy. Um, getting your hands on him and first and knocking him back before he can get his hands on you. All right, Ian, the Gators are headed into a, essentially a de facto playoff game this weekend. If they win it, they head to the SEC championship. If they lose it, there's a good chance they're going to miss it. You played in a very similar game against Tennessee in 2001. What do you remember from that game, and what was it like to play in that kind of pressured environment? Um. So... Uh... Thanks for bringing up uh, sore memories for me. Uh, but uh, that's, a, that's a game that uh, I still have nightmares about because we had, uh, we had four plays where they ran for 180 yards against us, and they were exactly what I'm talking about. We had eight or nine guys in the box, and we had one guy each time not in the right place, and the running back ran right through that spot. And... Those four plays, they had 180 yards and led to um, the points that they scored. And other than those four plays, they averaged less than three yards a carry. And so it just, for me, the what I remember is um, it's always great to play a home game in the swamp. The fans are uh, the best anywhere. And so uh, I remember, I remember the crowd. I remember the environment, um, but I also remember just the the bitterness of, you know, if we if we had done our job for those four plays, you know, maybe you know maybe we have a a different story to tell at the end of the season. And you never know when those types of things are going to happen, so you have to make sure that every time you go out there, that you're you're doing everything you can to do your job uh, the best that you can, and encouraging your teammates to do the same. What's the biggest difference between playing defensive tackle in the pros and playing defensive tackle in college? Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the speed. It's funny. I was uh, talking to a friend of mine about um, last night. He was asking me pretty much the same question, but everything happens faster. And it's hard to describe what that really means um, because it's, it's just a, it's a feeling and it's a sensory thing. You know, do you have less time to respond to what's happening in front of you? Um, everything gets on you faster. Um, the plays are faster. Everybody moves faster. Even your own teammates move faster. It's, uh, it's just a completely um, different uh, type of game. You don't have nearly as much reaction time to to make a mistake and recover from it in the NFL as you do in college. And that is the biggest difference, especially 
at defensive tackle because everything happens fast and they're already. You don't have a lot of space. You don't have a lot of time, but it happens even faster in the NFL. So the Gators, let's let's turn to this week a little bit. They're headed in to play a, a tough LSU team in a tough environment. What do you remember about playing in Death Valley? What was it like to play there? Um, so it's a, like you said, it's, it's a tough environment. And, of course, everybody hates you there. And um, LSU is a tough team to beat uh, when you go there. And they, they play different, um, like a lot of teams do in college. Um, I remember the message uh, that we got being that uh, the way that you get the way that you get cheers when you're on the road is by creating silence. And so we went in there uh, focused on trying to to do our job and get the crowd out of the game. Um, this is a this is the type of game where if you can go in and get off to a good start and get their get their crowd out of it. You kind of take some of the energy that the home team is going to get by feeding off of their home crowd. You take some of that away, and you get some good, positive vibes for your team and uh, makes it communication easier, especially for the offense uh, when you're able to do that. And, uh, you know, if you're able to get some, especially defensively, getting some turnovers is a big thing. And I remember when we went in there, our offense scored quickly, uh, first, and we were able to get some quick stops on defense and get the ball back to the offense, and we were able to score a lot of points uh, real quickly and keep them from scoring, and they had a really good offense with uh, Rohan Davey as quarterback at the time, and so it was a, it was a big deal for us to go in there and uh, shut them down early and keep them from getting a foothold in the game. So this Saturday, do you think the Gators have a chance to win? Oh yeah, I mean, anytime you can, uh, anytime you can play defense the way that we can, and uh, you know, play good special teams and um, convert on third downs the way our offense has been able to, with the exception of a couple of a uh, couple of instances during the season, you always have a chance to to win games. And then it comes down to taking care of the football and executing. You know, if we can stay away from having um, you know the letdowns like we have. Uh, on the road in a couple of the games, then the guys will have a, a really great chance to win because they're, you know, like I said earlier, they they all play hard. I know they all want to win, and they want an opportunity to to do something. I know that a lot of people are telling them that they can't do. And anytime you do that to a group of competitive uh, young men who uh, want to win and are, are wanting to to prove themselves, then you've got a great chance to win. I think uh, I think you'll see them uh, perform uh, really well uh, this weekend, and I wish them the the best of luck because there's there's nothing like being able to go to the SEC championship game and um, you know having a chance to to win that. Uh, that would be a a big deal for those guys. So we always like to ask this of former Gator players: Can you tell Gator Nation what you're up to these days? <laughs> yeah, I uh I'm an industrial engineer. Uh so uh I basically uh I tell people that I make charts and graphs for uh people that make decisions who are smarter than me. Uh but I work for Michelin. I'm currently working on a project where we are trying Michelin is trying to design a complete factory from 
raw materials all the way to a finished tire. Michelin doesn't currently have one of those, so I'm getting to work on designing some new technology and organizing the, the manufacturing process to to be efficient and uh, to be productive. So I get to work on some pretty cool things, uh, but uh, making a lot of uh, charts and graphs to explain why we should make one decision or the other um, and getting to travel a little bit. So it's uh, it's been some interesting things uh, that I'm doing. And uh, I'm also helping out uh, coaching at high school here locally, and uh, we have our first playoff game on Friday night. Looking to keep our season going. <laughs> oh so, well, yeah, well, that's what I'm doing. Good, good luck, good luck in that. Does the uh, <laughs> the question that I I know I, I love to ask and hear the answer to because it's so fascinating. Life after the NFL, you've played so many Saturdays and Sundays in front of so many fans, television audiences, people that are just really interested in your success because they're invested in the team. What is it like to live your daily life when you go to work and you don't have people cheering for you on the sidelines and they're not writing articles about your performance? Is it a really hard transition? Do you find yourself missing being in the arena or is it something that is is natural for you and you don't you don't think twice about it? Um so for me the the difficult thing is is not all of those things that you mentioned but it's the it's the challenge and the competition and the camaraderie with uh, your teammates. There's nothing that forges relationships and bonds like being in those battles uh, together, uh, being in those fights against uh, another team, and all the amount of work and effort that you put in together. Um, those those types of things are, are irreplaceable, and you don't really get that um, in the job that I have. I work with some really great people. Uh, but that, that constant challenge of um, even as far as challenging your sense of self uh, that you get from your coaches and you get from the other teams, um, that's not something that you get, that I get out of work. Um, and that's been one of my hardest transition is I go to work and I can do a good job and I can work hard, um, but I don't really see get to see immediate results all the time and in football you can tell when you've been working hard you get some type of you know response or return or a good result um and you get to do it with uh people that you're that you spend a lot of time with and you're working real hard with and so there's uh that that constant uh competition and challenge is something that i miss because I'm an ultra competitive person anyway, and I can't really manufacture that uh, that challenge and competitiveness um, in my job today. So that's that's the toughest part uh, for me. Well, Ian, thanks for coming on today. Really appreciate you sharing some of your opinions and also s- some of your stories. So uh, wish you best of luck and thanks for being on. Uh, no problem. Thank you guys for having me. It's SEC roundup time. Let's get started here. Blowout City, Alabama 51, Mississippi State 3. Mississippi State comes in feeling like, hey, we've turned a corner. We had an upset win. Big win. And Alabama is the crusher of dreams. So <laughs> Alabama, they're seemingly trap game proof at this point. This could have been a difficult thing for them, but I guess not, actually. 
Kentucky 36, Tennessee 49. Big win for the Vols. Close game. Gator fans everywhere wanted Kentucky to win that game. We would have won the East, but Tennessee is not cooperating, and now we have to hope Tennessee loses one of their last two games or we win this weekend. Weird that Kentucky is in the middle of this, considering where they started. Every week I'm like, well, this is the week they're going to crash down. They still they played pretty well in this game. Uh, Vanderbilt, 17, Missouri, 26. Nothing much to see here, I guess. This is the only surprise is that just when you think Vanderbilt's turned a corner, which they, they seemingly had playing a really close game with Auburn on the road, they lose to a horrifically bad Missouri team. And, and that's just the SEC East or SEC least this year. It's oddly competitive from top to bottom, but they're not really competitive with other people. Ole Miss, 29, Texas A&M, 28. I predicted this game on Saturday when I was looking at the upset list, even though they were starting their all-world freshman, who, good for Ole Miss, like, plug in one quarterback, Chad Kelly goes out, plug in your new quarterback, and he's on the road at A&M dropping freaking dimes in a really thrilling game, A&M without Trevor Knight, losing, and now two in a row, and the Sumlin post-October fade continues yet again. Yeah, I think that the big storyline is Shea Patterson playing so well in his first game. Some people are criticizing them for lifting his red shirt this late in the season, but what else are we going to do? He's going to be your guy next year. Go ahead and start playing him. Um, he's not going to, if he's that good, he's not sticking around that long anyway. Um, but yeah, Texas and him kind of free fall. Um, LSU 38, Arkansas 10 and a troubling result for Gator fans, I guess, but we're going to talk a lot about that game. Cause obviously I broke it down on film, but Yes, when you were watching that on Saturday, you were just thinking LSU is running all over them, and we got .9 yards per carry against them. So LSU looks good. They're riding high. They demolished Arkansas, who was also riding high coming into that game. And then Georgia 13, number 9, Auburn 7. Georgia wins this game without scoring an offensive touchdown. Just a bizarre result. Georgia's defense has not been that good, as evidenced by how we move the ball on them. They should have lost to Missouri. Most teams have been scoring 20 points on them. Auburn comes in where Sean White had been playing really well and just proceeds to lay a colossal egg on the road. Huge win for, for Georgia, though. I feel like the proper analogy for the unlit bonfire is that it rained on Saturday. And so now it's like, even if you were going to try to light the fire, it's harder to light it. And so there's a little bit more calm amongst Georgia fans after that win. Frustrating day for Auburn. I know this is ultimately where injuries catch up to you and there's nothing to do. So Sean White, still hurt, did not look like himself. And then at running back, they had three guys leave the program, either transfer, going pro unexpectedly. They find a star in Cameron Petaway. He gets hurt. Their previous starter, Carrion Johnson, gets hurt. They're playing wide receivers who are getting hurt in the game. They were down to nobody at running back, and this is a team that runs the ball every play. So not surprisingly, they were extremely ineffective. So I, I don't know what you do at that point. You just have to go, I guess we will play you know, a linebacker running back. I don't know. So that was a tough loss for them, I'm sure. So this is one of those college football weekends where – it looks like, oh, just a normal day. We're talking about it's kind of a boring weekend. Well, you know, that should tip you off. Craziness is about to ensue. Three huge upsets. First, Pittsburgh beating Clemson on a late field goal. After Clemson escaped NC State early in the season, they do not escape Pittsburgh. Clemson has been flirting with disaster on many, many weeks. And eventually, the flirtation winds up in, in doom. And that's what happened really entertaining I mean extremely entertaining football game back and forth fun to watch Clemson goes down 
uh, at home, which is probably the most surprising part about that. Pitt's a feisty team. They're they a decent are. team. They, they definitely don't overlook them, but Clemson just hasn't really put it all together for an entire football game this whole season. Clemson reminds me a lot of like a 09 Florida or a you know post-title FSU where they return a lot of people and seemingly would be good, but they're just missing that it that made them so good the previous season. So they were dodging bullets and did not dodge that one. USC Washington, number four, Washington finally goes down. So they go down because they faced a team that is just much more talented than, than they were. Weirdly, yeah. It looked like USC was just a better team, even though record-wise you wouldn't have thought so. Yeah, they're six and zero now since they found a quarterback, and and it's it's rising all the all the boats. And Helton out there, who people were kind of calling, he for was his dead head. after one and three. Games. It was already over. They're looking at who they're going to get, and now you can make an argument that USC is maybe as good as anybody. Uh, either way, great win for them to go on the road into into Washington, really dominate a very good Washington team. That's a, that's a good football team. They're sound. They're solid. They handled that game, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens with them with how the season goes on. But big result there. Washington goes down. They might have to face USC again in the conference title game if things work out. So Washington, all of a sudden, a little bit of the luster has been knocked off them, even though they played a, a decent game. They just came up against a better opponent. And then maybe the most stunning result for me, Iowa versus Michigan. I mean, people talked about, this is Michigan's first real road game. How are they going to do? And it's like, oh, it was just Iowa. Iowa's a tough place to play, tough team. And Michigan did not look good in this one. No, they didn't, and their Jim Harbaugh teams are prone to sometimes laying some of these eggs. Their offense can be really high-powered, but at times it can also just kind of disappear. But this is a bad, bad loss for Michigan. Um, probably not as bad as it wound up being for Ohio State, as we'll talk about later, but brutal loss for them on the road at an Iowa team that really hasn't been very good this year. Uh, but they played spirited, and they won the line of scrimmage battle. And if you win the line of scrimmage battle against Michigan, you can beat them. Yeah, Iowa basically punted their way to victory somehow. I don't <laughs> basically well Muschamp's dream game, but um, yeah, Michigan uh, and their quarterback going down as well, so that puts their season in jeopardy. And I, this goes to show you, I think that one week in college football is not like define your season, and teams flip up and down. You know, you had let's take Arkansas for example, riding high, coming off bye week, looked great against us come out flat against LSU or just get trucked by them. It's really interesting, this Florida team, too. You know, heading into Arkansas, people were like, oh, yes, we're on the way up. Post-Arkansas was like, can we beat anybody? We're the worst. And now we're back again a little bit. It's like, oh, some hope heading into LSU. And I think what teams, fans want from their teams is, like, this full consistency. Like, whatever their peak is, that's what they should play every week. And it's just not going to happen. You can see it in a week like this where teams lose – games that you would think they have no business of losing but that's just the way college football works so gator fans if you're riding high after this week be careful if you were if you're tempted to crash into the ground after this week be careful um it's just not it's never that black and white so we let's move on to a week where big game for the gators an opponent that we know pretty well we've already talked about once let's get another little primer here on lsu james so LSU comes into this game matchup stat-wise versus Florida, if you look at our past three games versus their past three games, in a good spot, which is the reason why Vegas put this game at 12.5 to start, and the betting public has taken it to 14. So the Gators are 14-point underdogs, That's which a big number. seems like a big number. If you look at these teams, they're sort of similar. 
in some regards. Um, big glaring differences, the Gators' red zone performance on offense amongst the worst. LSU's is, is in the top 50. Not spectacular, but much better. LSU's ability to run the ball is one of the best in the nation at 6.4 yards per carry. The Florida, the Florida Gators are at 4.2 yards per carry, which is middle of the pack. So much bigger advantage there. Both of these defenses are top five defenses virtually across the board. Not a lot to separate them. Probably the biggest thing is our defensive efficiency is better than theirs, and their offensive efficiency is better than ours. Um, other than that, the biggest factor is how much better LSU plays at home and how much worse we play on the road given this year's sample size. That's probably the biggest factor that's motivating this line is the stats are actually crazy. If you look at the, if you like advanced stats, you take a look at them. The home stats for LSU and the away stats for us, it's like the dream matchup for LSU to have moved this game to a home game. And that's a huge, huge narrative coming into Saturday is we're playing on the road and we necessarily shouldn't be. And oh, by the way, LSU is awesome at home. So statistically, there's not a lot dividing these two teams besides the fact that LSU is a much, much better running team. They also are a lot more veteran-oriented team, especially on offense. And, oh, of course, there are two Purdue quarterbacks battling against each other in the Purdue Bowl. So go figure that out. Uh, the most important question that we should be asking ourselves now, though, is Les Miles gone, Ed Orgeron's in. When we first previewed this game, Ed had had one game under his belt against you know Southern Miss. Now we've seen him. We've seen what they've done. What have we learned about LSU in the Ed O era? Well, I think that we've learned is players are willing to play hard for him. And that's been like his calling card, I guess. And so I was interested to see them post Alabama. Would they come out, you know, kind of their momentum installed? They lost the big game. How would they fare against Arkansas? And they crushed them. So they're still roughly the same team, I would say. They're a team that's built around the run, limited passing, plays excellent athletic defense. So I don't know. They they are who we thought they were kind of from the beginning. I think they're a little more potent on offense because they're a little less stubborn than what Les Miles was doing. But they're a really talented team. And if they get rolling on you running the ball, you're in trouble. And, and I, I think that's who they were a month ago. So – that they're a little more stable than I think there was, there's a lot of volatility with them. Like how are they going to fare? But they seem a little more stable now than they did a month ago. Yeah. I think you said it best with regards to the fact that really they're just, they're more consistent. Edo gets these guys really fired up to play the game. Um, and that's impressive. That's not easy to do because they have not accomplished any of the goals they set out to accomplish this year. They were supposed to be a playoff team. They won't be. They were supposed to contend for the SEC West. They they didn't. They can't win that. And yet they're still playing really hard. They go on the road against Arkansas and they they really club them. But this is the same Les Miles team. They they run a few more sets where they have three wide receivers or four, maybe a handful, but they still run the ball 60% of the time, pass the ball 40% of the time. Not very good at passing, much better at running. Primarily that's because they kind of have to be that way. But nothing earth-shattering with regards to schematics, but Definitely something to be said with regards to consistency. Let me ask you, I know you've paid attention to this. What did we learn about them in the Bama game and then maybe in the Arkansas game? Well, the film study in both of those games is actually really interesting. You can learn a lot about what LSU wants to do and what's worked with stopping them. So I'm going to start with the Arkansas game because that's the one that happened last weekend and work backwards to what 
worked with what Bama did. But looking at them defensively, LSU is very successful because they run a fantastic 3-4 cover 2 defense. It's very confusing. Their their edge linebackers in the 3-4 can cover in space. There's not a lot of places to throw the ball. Primarily, there's not a lot of places to throw the ball underneath. So little drag routes, little hitch routes. It's hard to hit those routes. But it's especially hard because at any given time, they can change who's blitzing from a zone blitz scheme. And it confuses quarterbacks based upon their pre-snap reads. That worked extremely well against Arkansas. It also worked extremely well against Jalen Hurts. Both of those guys could not get into a rhythm throwing the football against LSU. That's a difficulty. That's a problem. On the other side of the ball, the offense is probably the most interesting thing, and it's pretty revelatory, is against Arkansas, they were able to run the ball really well. And they primarily run most of their plays out of what you would call 12 or 13 personnel. 12 personnel is going to be two wide receivers, one running back, 13 personnel is going to be one wide receiver, and then occasionally they'll even run a no wide receiver set. But basically, that's the same kind of stuff Les Miles ran. Against Arkansas, extremely effective. They gouged them in the run game. They didn't pass for much of anything. They had one big pass play, everything else underneath. But they were really able to run whenever they wanted, however they wanted, out of those formations. When you put on the Bama tape, something really interesting happens. Bama primarily ran a 5-2 defense every time LSU was either in 12-man or 13-man personnel. So if they had two receivers or less on the field, Bama went straight to a 5-2. Five defensive linemen, two linebackers, and a cover two. And they just obliterated the line of scrimmage. 5-2 is a, a classic run defense, but a lot of colleges don't run it. And when they pulled out of that and they were in a three-wide receiver or four-wide receiver set, Alabama pulled into our base defense, a nickel cover two. Except they did something that was really interesting. They used a linebacker to spy the running back on every single play. So they weren't even concerned with their linebackers helping in traditional pass defense. They literally just shot the gap to where the running back was going to be popping out for a flats pass. And they foiled LSU on this kind of play maybe six or seven times during this game. LSU primarily wants to throw the ball to their running backs or throw the ball to their fullbacks blocking out of the backfield that they'll kind of use as like an H-back. So what I'm saying with all this is Alabama ran two simple defenses the entire game and did not let LSU gain hardly any yards nor score a point. The question that we have to ask now going into this game as Florida fans is, one, do we run a 5-2 defense? No, we don't. We very easily could. If I'm Jeff Collins, I'm, I'm absolutely going to do that, given the success Bama had, and given how every other team that's played LSU has had no success with four down linemen against their heavy packages. So the second question to that, which you heard from Ian, is can you run a 5-2 and control your gaps? Which Bama, of course, can. They're coached by probably the best defensive coach maybe in either the NFL or college. Can the Gators do it? I don't know. But the most important thing in this game is going to be stopping the run. The 5-2 on tape does it really well. And oh, by the way, when they go to three or four wide receivers, our base defense covers them really well if we're going to sell out and cover the running backs. We have had problems with this. We've struggled to stop screens. We've struggled against Arkansas to stop the little flare-out passes. You cannot let LSU steal yards with these little four- and five-yard dump passes to their running backs. Bama's game plan was to stop them doing that, and they sold out on it from play one. They didn't even try to stop them in their base defense. They always went seven or eight men in the box, 5-2 formation, and it ate LSU up. So it's interesting because my takeaway point is I came into film study thinking, can we stop them? And I came out of it saying, well, there's a really good recipe to do it, and it's not very complicated. It wasn't rocket science what Bama did. In fact, it was very simple football. And LSU could never even get past it to where Bama had to hide it. 
So there's something there. There's something there for us to look at. Now, can we execute that? I don't know. But really, really interesting with regards to what we've seen against those two different opponents. So will yeah. we be Arkansas or will we be Alabama? So this is interesting because the elite defenses that LSU has faced, Wisconsin, Auburn, Alabama, completely shut them down. Now, two, a couple of those were you know under less miles. But, I mean, they were – I mean, that game against Bama was so much fun. But they could do nothing consistently – and so I don't know if we have the personnel currently to do what Bama Bama is unlike anybody else, but I think we can do similar things to like Auburn and um, and Wisconsin did. So at the injuries are going to play a part in this. Young linebackers on the road, I could see some moments where we're not able to fit those gaps and you know be on the same page that we're supposed to be. And there's some interesting factors in this game. Uh, does emotion play a part in this? This is a, you know, our our players and coaching staff were accused of ducking this team. That hasn't got a lot of play in the media this week. Maybe it will in the coming days, but I think that's going to motivate them. The chance to play in the SEC championship is going to motivate them. That's So those things are factors that don't fit into the box score and statistics. So we'll have to see how our players deal with them and how their players deal with them. And so let me ask you, other than just emotion or kind of, you know, these factors that are hard to quantify, what are your keys to victory? On offense, we have to prove that we can beat their 3-4 cover 2. I don't think we're going to be able to beat it running. We haven't been able to solely run the ball into the teeth of a front like that. However, we could beat it passing. And the way you beat it passing is by attacking the safeties. You cannot attack a 3-4 cover 2 with underneath routes. You just cannot do it. You will lose. Appleby has proven he's a very good deep ball quarterback. So what does this all hinge on? It's going to hinge on our offensive line. If we can pick up the zone blitz as LSU runs, we will have enough time to create the vertical two-on-ones we need on the field. And we have to be able to hit some of those. If you start to hit some of those, what you're going to do is you're going to pull LSU back further in that 3-4 shell, and it's going to open up space for the run. If we do not do that, we're going to fight an uphill battle all game long. So the O-line, we need to protect well, and we need to attack them down the field. This cannot be a short passing game attack game plan. We have to stretch those safeties and attack them two-on-one. So look for deep vertical routes early on. Look for the O-line to hold up against three, four zone pressures. That's number one. Number two, on the defensive side of the ball, I would love to see us come out in a 5-2, given what I've seen on tape. But if we do not, we have got to set the edge at the line of scrimmage. If we allow LSU to run the ball at the edge of our defense, and we have not set the line of scrimmage there, we're in a whole lot of trouble. That means one mistake from our freshman linebacker and Darius Geis or Leonard Fournette are running into the next level, and that is not a recipe for success. So those three things being said, I think make the ball game. Can we stop their running game? If we can, they don't pass very well. Can we attack them vertically out of their 3-4 cover 2 shell? And can the offensive line hold up on the road against a very confusing scheme. If those three things happen, we can absolutely win this game because LSU becomes very one-dimensional and very simple, but they rely on their athleticism to overcome their simplicity. This is a really interesting game from on a lot of levels, both like the meta storylines and the tactical decisions. So if you look at Florida, what is our strength that maybe other teams can't replicate? And it's our corners. Now we like to put Tabor and Wilson on an island. And I think we're going to have to do that even more so and just say, 
guess what, guys? If you get beat, we're going to lose this game. And we're going to have to commit everything to stopping the run. Now, this is a game where Marcus May would come in really handy. This is a game where Alex Anzalone and Jared Davis would come in really handy. So the guys who are replacing them are going to be key. I think our D-line is going to hold up, especially if C.C. Jefferson plays. Love to see Brian Cox play in this game. But I think we have enough depth and enough guys there at this point in the season. The coaching staff is really trusting these younger guys, and they've started to play better when you gave them some criticism early on, some of our younger defensive ends. But they've, they've been playing well for the most part. So can these young linebackers stand up to this test? This is a huge if. I mean, I there's a very big chance that these guys are going to be in over the head on the road against a team that can really run the ball well. So we could get to this game in that 14-point line point line could be like, oh, well, <laughs> who would have ever bet on that that we got blown out by 30? But like you said, if we can stop their run, I think, yeah, they become really anemic on offense. And for us on offense, it maybe it's too reductive to say this, but can this patchwork offensive line create some space for us to throw the ball downfield? Like, you're right. So we threw a ton of short passes in this um, South Carolina game. We very rarely went down the field. We're going to have to. They're going to make us. And I'm hopeful that the coaching staff is willing to do that. They did that in the first half against Tennessee with Austin Appleby. I, if he can repeat that kind of performance, that'll go a long way. And then we're going to need something to happen in the special teams. If Callaway can return punts like he did um, against South Carolina, that's going to be such a huge benefit. We're going to need short fields. I don't, cause we're not going to be able to grind out the yards. Um, so there, this is a, an odd way to hope for victory. You're going to need special teams play or a defensive touchdown, something like that to turn the tide. And I'm thankful that this is a one o'clock game, not a night game, which LSU seems to be like unbreakable. So uh, I'm hopeful for a Gator win. James, what about you? What are you going to predict? Well, I think if we hold them to under 170 rushing yards and we ourselves gain 300 yards of offense, just 300, we don't need 450, we don't need 500, we need 300 and hold them to 170. And I really don't care what they pass for. I think we have a, actually a really good shot to win this game. We're missing nine starters. So far, I think in some cases, you could argue our backups have made the team better. Small sample size. Tough game for me to predict. I think you're probably thinking, well, James, you predicted last weekend with South Carolina. Well, we said we were a quarterback away. Appleby's performance has absolutely inspired a lot of confidence. I believed in Appleby before uh, as, with regards to his, his skill set, his talents. And Applebee's played against the team much like LSU, which is Vanderbilt. And that might be crazy to say, but actually Vanderbilt on defense and offense runs very similar schemes to LSU. With those things being said, I just feel like it's really unlikely for us to play mistake-free football on the road in a game of this magnitude against an LSU team that really wants to beat us. So I think we lose this game 17-13. I do think that it's close. And a lot of this is going to hinge upon turnovers. If they get an Applebee's head and we see the the jittery freak out Applebee we saw against Vanderbilt, we could be in trouble. By the same token, LSU should not be able to score on their own accord more than 10 points against our defense. They really just shouldn't be able to. I'm going to give them one breakaway run, maybe two or three. But for them to get to 25, 30 points against us, like they did against Arkansas, I don't see a matchup world where that exists. They don't have the right personnel to punish us 
unless we punish ourselves or we put ourselves in a bad position with poor scheming. So I don't think we win this game. I do think we definitely could win this game. The spread feels much too large to me. It feels like an overvalued LSU team and an undervalued Florida team because we won on the road to Arkansas and lost because we've been really bad on the road before. But I think this team right now, in a weird way, has got a little spark. They've got a little something to hang their hat on. There's an energy amongst this team. So 17-13 loss, but maybe more hopeful than people on the pod thought it would have been. That's interesting. I, when we did a little schedule walkthrough the previous week, you know, I, I went out on a limb and predicted an LSU win. <laughs> I want to pick us to win. I'm hopeful. But our performance on the road has been pretty dreadful. And so I'm, I think I have to pick LSU. And I'm going to say 21-14 LSU. So closer than the 14-point spread. But... I, and like I said, I'm hopeful that we can win. I don't feel like this is necessarily doom and gloom. And LSU could blow us out. That's certainly a reasonable possibility. Maybe even a probability, depending on the way you look at the game. But I think the Gators will keep it close as well. I think it's going to be a really fun game overall. So normally this would be when we'd have our LSU guest. But since we've already had a great LSU guest, Chris Blair, on our previous LSU episode... We chose not to do one, and instead, Alan and I gave you an extended breakdown of the LSU Florida matchup this weekend. We certainly hope that you enjoyed it. If you want to catch Chris Blair, the voice of the Tigers, uh, you can catch him on our first LSU podcast. His interview starts at one hour and ten minutes. He does a great job of like giving you insight into the LSU program, Coach Orgeron. It's a really good listen. And we'll come back right after this to close up the show and talk about the playoff chaos, potentially. Let's close here and talk about the chaos that was college football. James, did the shakeup of all these top teams losing, does that change anything for you? You know, the first thing I think about when I, when I think about this past weekend and two, three, and four going down the first time since 1985 is that a four-team playoff is not enough. Maybe it needs to be eight seems to be the right number to me. And that, that's a whole nother discussion for a whole nother podcast. But I have a hard time looking at the top eight teams right now and thinking that I can accurately pick four. I look at the rest of the season and think you have scenarios now where Ohio State might not play in their championship game, but be a better looking playoff contender than the teams that did. And maybe even a team they lost to like Penn State. That seems unfair. What if Alabama were to lose somehow magically to an SEC East team? given their body of work, would they not go? So that's my reaction, is these teams fall because there's there's a lot of parity amongst the top. And splicing it with four seems a lot harder to do than eight. And if you're thinking, hey, well, what about Team 9? Team 9 is almost always going to have two losses or more. Less of a concern there. But when you get four, I don't know. How do you pick between Team 5 and 6? Seems tough. That's what I think about. I 100% disagree. I love the four teams. I I'm always loathe to dilute the field i like the playoff i was nervous that it would ruin the magic of the regular season but i thought it was a good move and it has been i don't want it to go to eight it would be okay i like it where it's at a lot right now really i don't know if this chaos did all that much i think clemson still makes it in if they went out alabama of course is basically assured of a number one seed unless they drop both of their last two games. And, you know, I, I still think 
that Washington can make it in, you know, that's going to be the biggest probably X factor, you know, because I think the Big Ten's in, the SEC's in, the ACC's in, and now maybe maybe two big teams, Big Ten teams make it in rather than that Pac-12. That's probably the biggest movement. But these top teams are still there. Everyone still controls their own destiny, roughly, except for maybe Ohio State. And it's always at this time of the year when you think, oh my gosh, like there's no way it's going to sort itself out. It does, and it will, and it'll be close. And, and that's why I think that typically you can look and say, okay, right now, how would you ever decide that? But when everything is said and done, it becomes a lot more clear. Upsets happen, other things happen. Still... I think eight would be the ideal way to go without diluting anything when you look back at history and see how close teams five through eight are. But this weekend, you have two games that are really affecting the playoff picture. If you go with our our preseason thesis that I had, which is the Pac-12 and the Big 12 probably won't get anybody, um, this one particular game is going to really define that. It's Oklahoma traveling to West Virginia. Oklahoma's a three-point favorite. Those are two teams ranked in the teens. If you have not paid attention at all to Will Greer's West Virginia team, they are 8-1 and one versus an 8-2 and two Oklahoma team that kind of everyone had written off after the first four games and now is playing themselves into a chance to be relevant. Huge game for Oklahoma. West Virginia survived Texas last weekend at Texas. They seem to prove that they're better than people thought they would be. What are your thoughts on this one? I don't know. This is a hard one to pick. Um, I, I think West Virginia wins this one. I think they play better defense than anybody else in the – in the Big 12. So I I don't know. Oklahoma, they can look incredible on offense, but I don't know. I like West Virginia. And then that makes them a dark horse playoff candidate. They're not a they don't have a great resume, but it'll look a lot better if they beat Oklahoma. I think most people are picking Oklahoma in this game though. What about you? Yeah, this is like you said, this is hard because the big the big twelve teams, they score a million points on each other, but when they play outside the conference a lot of times they just don't really score. And and West Virginia's like you said they don't really play like a Big 12 team defensively. They actually play defense. Um, so I, I have no idea what to think about this thing, but I feel like this is a game that Oklahoma should win because they have more talent. And then the other game, Louisville versus Houston. Not as big a game as it appeared to be at the beginning of the year. Yeah, the luster is definitely off this one, but this is a super important game for Louisville. They were clearly in a trap game against Wake Forest last weekend. So, I mean, really tight game until late in the third quarter, and then... Louisville wound up killing them. They blew so the you, doors off in the fourth Yeah, if you quarter. didn't watch the game, you're like, oh, yeah, that was a, a snoozer. But it really wasn't, actually. And, and I think they were looking ahead to this game. Houston, this is one of those games where everyone's written you off and you played poorly. And then all of a sudden, you have a chance to like become relevant. So these games can be harder than they look on paper sometimes. Louisville should win this game, given their body of work. They are a better team than Houston. Houston has oddly just really stumbled and couldn't find their way uh, since they had an impressive opening game debut. So I think one factor in, in your argument for eight teams is that Louisville could get left out of the playoff. And I don't know if they're one of the four most deserving teams because Clemson did beat them head-to-head. But they are the team I most want to see in the playoff. They're the most exciting team, and it's going to suck if they get left out. I'm hoping for a scenario where they make it in because Lamar Jackson is unreal. He's like a video game. And I would really love to see him play against this Alabama defense, but I don't know if we're going to get that opportunity. Oh, that would be incredibly fun. Action Jackson train all the way until the end. Well, thanks as always for listening to the show, all 13,000 plus of you. Retweet this week's show for a chance to win some sweet swag from fanessentials.net. And to all of you who share the show, pass it on to your friends and family. 
We really appreciate that. We know you don't have to. It gives Alan and I great joy to know that this show has grown from essentially nothing to something. It's a lot of fun. We would never have done it without your support. And we do it because you guys enjoy the show. So thanks so much for the feedback, for all the encouragement. It means a lot to us. Enjoy the week. Go Gators. Hopefully we pull an upset this weekend. And next Monday we're sitting here talking with you about how great it is to be a Florida Gator.